welcome to the Slayer Sessions with Shannon and Anga. Our mission is to wipe out the fear and discomfort of anxiety. It's good to be back together with you this morning, Ananga, to further our conversation about Ayurveda. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about the senses and as you talk about senses and sensibility as an exercise in self-study. So tell me more about Ayurveda and the senses. Ayurveda has a very interesting way of describing the senses. It calls them the knowledge-acquiring senses. And it's very clear about the purpose they serve for us. Everyone knows we have five senses of taste, touch, sight, sound and smell. So the reason Ayurveda describes these as the knowledge-acquiring senses is that the purpose of these senses is to bring information to the mind, to our intelligence and to our awareness about our external environment. But the trouble is, with the day and age we're living in now, where everything has become so busy and we're operating at a fast pace and, as we've talked about many times in our previous interviews, we're distracted and we're overloaded with information, then our senses are not just the knowledge-acquiring senses, but they're the stress-delivering senses. Because instead of us just hearing the sounds of nature or being aware of the taste of the food we're eating or the temperature of our body, the information that the senses are feeding back to the mind for us to process and deal with, very often the natural sensations that they're supposed to be bringing to us are overridden by our desire to get things done, get through our working day. And so they're delivering us all kinds of extra information. And what basically happens is we get mental indigestion. We can't take it all in. We can't process it all. And according to Ayurveda, that's the root cause of stress and anxiety. That is very clear to me as I think about how I can be overstimulated by sound very clear to me based on an experience I just had with a quart of fresh strawberries from a roadside stand and what that's like and the contrast of a fresh, beautiful, nourishing scent like fresh strawberries versus the backup beeping of a village truck cleaning up the streets. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes we're so caught up in the noises we're hearing that we don't taste the strawberries and we don't take the moment to connect with those things. So we're losing the sense to find simple pleasure and nourishment in what we're bringing to the body and we're wasting energy and the opportunity to remain in balance by the way we're disturbed and automatically reacting to what's coming in. I was listening to somebody yesterday who was getting increasingly agitated with their dogs barking and (laughs) in the end I just had to laugh because... The dogs barked and they barked and they start shouting, be quiet, be quiet, and then it got louder and louder and it was just more barking. The human just started barking too because they couldn't find the space to just calm them down, give them what they needed, move them into another area, whatever, just look and notice why they're doing it, what do they need, or just shush. Sometimes you can just shush them and they stop. Sure. Because she was running on automatic pilot and she had so much in her head and so much to do, then the dogs are barking, so she starts barking. And it's just more disturbance for everyone. But that's that's what we tend to do because, again, if we've not got that witnessing, that pause for thought that we've been discussing, then we bark. Somebody cuts us up on the road. We don't have the space or the compassion to think maybe they've got a sick child in the car, maybe they're feeling ill, maybe they're really late for something crucial. We just 
bug, we just fire back. Oh, they cut me up. And we're projecting through our own disturbance, through our own false ego, instead of actually relating softly to each other as realising that we're all going through stuff. We've all got stuff going on. And also respecting ourselves and acknowledging that we can't cope and we can't expect to experience peace and mental health and mental balance if our mind is constantly being delivered so much stuff. Every so often you'll see a comedy show where somebody gets invited around to one person's house for a meal and they're double booked and they get invited to another house. And the whole theme of the comedy is this person trying to eat and cope with a second meal when they've already eaten the first one. And they're in complete distress and they're trying to be polite and they're trying to go through it. But that's hell to try and digest two completely massive meals in quick succession. That's what we're doing to our minds all the time. Right. This is an example of what you would describe as being at the mercy of a disturbed or tyrannical mind. Yeah, as we've touched on before in the Bhagavad Gita, it says that our mind can be our best friend or our greatest enemy. And the reason the mind becomes our enemy is because sometimes we just leave it to run and it's disturbed and it's chewing over all kinds of desires and information coming in, stuff it's trying to process, and it just gets on our case and gives us real suffering, as is obvious in stress and anxiety. How can we reveal how our mind is operating? What are the things that we can do to balance our senses and come back to a, to a better understanding of what's going on? The first thing is to sit down and listen. Don't be doing anything else. Sometimes the mind's trying to reveal stuff to us that we need to process and we need to adjust or we need to let go and very often we're not hearing it properly so it starts to shout. There's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is that we need to give ourselves space to hear our thoughts and deal with them rather than them just running and running and running or we get into bed at night and we try to sleep and the mind says, now you're going to listen to me or it'll come up in our dreams if we don't give it time to process. So one of my spiritual teachers told me, if you want to find spiritual peace and you want to upgrade your consciousness, then sit and listen, because it's in those gaps that you can hear your higher awareness. But because we're so disturbed and we're running so fast and so hot, when we sit down and we sit quietly, we're here in the mind, and it's going to give us trouble. So the first thing is to listen and deal with it, a bit like a bored three-year-old. Mum's on the phone trying to get some work done, and then she comes off the phone and the toddler's saying, now are you going to listen to me? Are you going to play with me? Look at my picture. Look at this. Can we do this? Can we do that? And they need that attention because they've got that young, unharnessed energy. Well, that's what the mind's going to do initially when we stop and give it space. It's going to just lay all its burdens on us. So initially we need to do a bit of house cleaning and taking stock and noticing what's it becoming disturbed by, what's it feeding back to us. And just, you know, we declutter our homes. It's very common to see people go through a phase of spring cleaning where stuff gets sent out to the charity store. We have to declutter our minds too. We need the space to mentally digest and process. And it's so important and yet so overlooked. To give an idea of how important it is, Dr. Vasant Lad, he's one of the topmost teachers and conveyors of Ayurvedic information on our planet at this time. And his definition of senility is the chattering of a bruised mind. Mm. That's telling, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. So you leave the mind chattering away, it's damaged, it's reminiscing over its hurts, it's re-injuring itself by not processing and by running stuff over. Now, everyone's terrified of getting senile or Alzheimer's or so many of these other 
mental illnesses that can affect us in old age. Most people who are heading through their 60s and 70s, it's their nightmare. They dread that. So he's telling us senility is the chattering of a bruised mind. So calm down the chattering, deal with the bruises, and then you're going to really protect your mental health. That's how important it is. Wow. And I think about the conversations that I have with many of my coaching clients who just can't seem to wrap their mind around creating space and time to be still. And they have so much going on as evidenced by the fast paced world that we live in, that oftentimes they're in a space where they feel like they can't do it because they think that they have to be able to devote 30 minutes or an hour or more to be still. And what I do with them and what I recommend is just to begin with a couple of minutes. Yeah. And to understand that some nice deep breathing and some space to be still and to just focus on that for just a couple of minutes makes a difference. And they laugh and say, how is that possible? You know, two minutes. And then when they actually commit to that two minutes, the feedback that I get after a week or two is pretty astounding. Yeah. That just in a couple of minutes a day, which is easily doubled and tripled and, and so on and so forth. But to be able to start with these small steps and these incremental steps for people who this is brand new to, mm-hmm. for people who might frankly be afraid of being still. Yeah, and rightly so, because the mind will turn your head into a complaints department when you stop the first time. So that's where you really shine as a coach in making this information so bite-sized and available to people. And I think it's great to start with just a couple of minutes a day. For somebody who's suffering from anxiety, to ask them to sit and try and meditate and sit with the mind for 20 minutes is actually not a kindness because they're going to get stuck with all the thoughts in their head that they're desperately trying to avoid. All their dreads, all their fears are just going to come crashing in on them. So when people recommend meditation for anxiety, we need to be clear about what's going to give them a good experience. I did an experiment with some attendees at a workshop a couple of weeks ago. We're presenting a workshop called The Journey into Meditation. And the first thing we did was had everyone just sit in silence for one minute and try and think of nothing. And the object of the exercise was to count how many things you actually thought of, because you can't, mm. you can't think of nothing. So then where yoga and where the guided experiences we're trying to share come in really handy is they give you something to think of, something to follow that is supportive And it's calming and it will help you feel better. It will help you increase your sense of core peace and security. But at the same time, it's very neatly distracting your mind and saying, hey, just do this. Breathe here. Put your attention there. Everything's calming down. You're safe. You're okay." And it's giving that support and that framework to step into where people can let the mind go and can find a few moments of peace, but not to be expected that they can do it all for themselves. It's really not a kindness to expect people to figure it out when they've got a head full of worries. Sure. Well, the other thing that I recommend as well is guided meditation is, in my opinion, a wonderful way to start to experiment with meditation if it's a brand new idea to somebody. Mm -hmm. And all they have to do is show up and listen. And I'm wondering what your experience has been in regards to guided meditation versus just taking some time to be still. In my own practice? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I do both. If I'm unwell or I'm in pain, if I have a bad headache, 
then I use guided meditation because I know I can just lay down in my bed, put my iPod on and I can just get real relief. I can get very relaxed, it reduces any physical pain, it reduces any mental agitation. Or if I've been extremely busy and I've got a full head, then I'll use that at night to uh, clear my mind into a more relaxed and a vacant space where I can drift off into a good sleep. And having lived with illness on and off for the last five or six years, I can say that that's been an absolute lifesaver for me. That's helped me enormously, so I really recommend that. But the other meditation I practice is to sit and to really enter into a meditative process of my own accord. And for that, I use Japa meditation because that develops your internal awareness and raises your spiritual consciousness, but also it occupies your senses, as we're talking about the senses, in a very positive way because you're using your voice to sound the mantras you're chanting, you're using your hearing to hear them, you can feel the sound vibrate through your body. If you want to use mala or beads, japa beads, then you're engaging your sense of touch. The more senses you can engage in that peaceful process, the more you benefit from it. For example, this morning I just went outside and sat on a blanket on the grass at about five o'clock this morning for an hour and did that. And I've got more done today since doing that. <laughs> I, I can tell you for a fact, because I've been doing this for 20 years, I get more done and I'm happier and have more peace of mind after doing that than if I get up and rush into my work. So finding time gives you time. It's an illusion of a busy mind to think that not taking time out gets you more done because it doesn't. You have so much more clarity and so much more peace and positivity when you can make some space. Mm, I agree. And I use guided meditation for the same purpose that you do. When I'm not feeling well, when my head is too full, when I know I just need to be able to come down and to sink in and, and to soak up somebody else's teaching mm. and it's amazing what a shift that can make so whether it's guided or whether it's your own practice or however you choose to be still however you choose to allow yourself to accept the calm that's perfect that's perfect for you yeah and we have to know that also that there's different times when we need a different entry point when a plane lands, it doesn't just drop out of the air and it's on the ground. It goes through preparation stages to land safely and to slow itself down and bring itself to a halt. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to do that. There's mornings where I can enter into my personal meditation practice immediately and I'm ready for it. There's mornings when I'm too groggy and I'm tired and I'd rather stay in bed, so I have to get up and shower and wake myself up and enter into it. Or there's mornings where I'm wired and I know there's things I need to do and I wake up with a head full of you know, a to-do list, mm -hmm. on those mornings, then I sit and I do some pranayama or some relaxation breathing first to just settle my mind and then be able to enter into it. So it's really good to experiment with entry points and be flexible. We can't expect to get up and sit down at dawn every morning for an hour and everything's going to go smoothly because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't always work like that. It's something that we have to persist with, as we do, regrettably, with everything in life. We have to persist with our relationships and and our work and everything we're doing. It's just another thing that we need to be flexible and experimental about and just try, try what works. I like what you're sharing because it also ties back to the witnessing and the revealing of how your mind is operating. Mm -hmm. So depending on how you find yourself, the state that you're in when you wake up in the morning, you can determine how you want to proceed. Yeah. Precisely by being in tune with how your mind is operating. 
Absolutely, yeah. So let's take this a little bit further and talk about the discussion points that that will reveal how our mind is operating. Okay. The first thing is, since we've been talking about the the, um, Ayurvedic types, the doshas and the mind, one thing that we can notice is how distracted we become by different sensory stimuli, by different incoming information. So you shared the example that there are certain sounds that really get to you and really grab your attention. And I have the same thing. If somebody wants to talk to me and they're watching TV or there's something else going on, I can't do it. I used to to be able to, but since I have to be careful with my health, I can't process two sources of incoming sound at the same time. So they can watch TV or they can have my full attention, but they won't get both (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I can't. Immediately my mind starts to get confused and has too much to digest. And I wonder how many of us actually experience that, but without awareness we feel irritable or uncomfortable, but we don't realise why. Mm -hmm. When the mind is vata disturbed, it's incredibly sensitive to sound. It's jumpy if there's a loud noise. If I'm uh, relaxed and everything's going well in my world, the phone will ring and I'll reach over and pick it up and I'm relaxed. If I'm really busy or I'm travelling and I'm vata disturbed, the phone rings and I'll scream. Because ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a sudden intrusion into me trying to rein my head in. So that's a sign of vata disturbance. We become very sensitive to sound. We become disturbed by it and agitated by it. Pitta is very visually excited. Pitta people, are they're smart, they're clean, they're smart dressers, they like things to be presented well. So they're going to become easily disturbed by mess, untidiness, tardiness, lateness. Things that they can observe, things that they can notice are going to get to them. So different doshas are going to respond more strongly to different stimuli as it comes in. So then you just need to learn to look and observe, okay, if there's loud noise around and it's disturbing us, what can we do about it? How can we make ourselves more comfortable? And a singer friend of mine who travels a lot once taught me that if you're on the tour bus and you can't do anything about the noise and the chatter, then you grab your iPod and put your headphones in and you get sound-isolating headphones and you choose your soundtrack because you can't do anything about the one outside. And that was a fantastic tip for me, just as an example. Well, that's a great tip for me as well, because I tend to be, apparently, based on what I'm learning from you, is I tend to be more vata disturbed than than anything else when out of balance. And like you, there cannot be multiple things going on at the same time. I cannot read well the television's on or have a conversation with somebody if there's other back chatter or something else going on it becomes too much but like you I'm just honest I'll I'll just say excuse me I'm having a hard time focusing (laughs) but for sure sound is the thing that I notice the most and that I've always as far back as I can remember been extremely sensitive to Mm. so I will definitely try the headphone idea I think that might be very good for me, especially in the mornings when I'm trying to get some things done. And the lovely people that work in our community are just keeping our village beautiful. And I appreciate that. I just don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're getting their things done too. Exactly. It's an interesting thing. And we, we just have to learn to notice what's driving us nuts and see what can we do about it. And a lot of the meditative music that I've created is what I need to hear when I need to calm down. So I'm hoping that others may have the same experience. 
and I'm very quick to just put the iPod headphones in. No bad manners intended to anyone else, but sometimes I just need to close my ears and close my eyes. And <laughs> there's a very natural reflexive response. If somebody's very vata disturbed, they will curl up in a ball. If their nervous system's really overtaxed, sometimes they'll blip out, they'll just pass out, where the body just resets itself. Or sometimes they'll put their hands over their head and they'll just curl up in a ball, like in a fetal position. Mm. And that's where they've had enough and they just really need to shut everything out and calm down. And that's when things get really bad. So it's always a good idea to try and know that we have that propensity if we're going to start suffering the mind and then think, well, what can we do naturally to invoke that relief but without having to drive ourselves crazy or get to that intense point of suffering where you just need to cover your head and curl up? And in yoga, they recommend child's pose. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful pose to just completely let go and, and release and chill out. Yeah. So perhaps you could explain a little bit more about that for our listeners, how to do it and what the benefits are. Because Ayurveda is saying, look, do that before things get bad. Just do it for five minutes a day and protect yourself. Well, it's the asana or pose or posture that yogis come back to in between their yoga practice, before their yoga practice, at the end of the practice, or at any point in which uh, they feel like they need to just regroup mm -hmm. and be still and really balance their, the energy that's flowing through their body. To begin child's pose, you want to sit on your knees with your feet together and your buttocks resting on your heels. You'll separate your knees about the width of your hips and then place your hands on your thighs, palms down. From here, you're going to inhale deeply and then exhale as you bring your chest between your knees while swinging your arms forward. This is where you'll want to rest your forehead on the floor if possible and then bring your arms around to your sides until the hands are resting on either side of your feet, palms up. Some people have difficulty resting their forehead on the floor, which is no problem. You can use a, a blanket or a bolster, or if you'd like, you can take your hands and make a fist with both hands and then stack them and, and rest your forehead on your hands instead of bringing them back around. Breathing gently is really important through this posture. Just breathing through your nostrils and holding one or two minutes or, or even longer if you prefer. The technique is a wonderful healing, balancing asana that can be easily done by beginners and is a great part of any yoga routine. Thank you. That's a really beautiful explanation. And I may dig out an illustration to put with this on our website as well. And that's a very good point that you raise also is to respect your body and stay there as long as you wish and as long as feels good because that pose is doing something for you. It's doing something for your nervous system. And it's always very interesting to me, as you said, that when your coaching clients follow your advice and they take those two minutes out, how when they come back to you a week or two later, they're amazed at the result they've got from that. It's also very interesting to me when we adopt these natural healing postures or we follow a guided meditation process, how quickly the intelligence of the body grasps onto that and says, thank you. And then we want to do it more and more because we have that pause to get the feedback from the body mm -hmm. that it likes. It's what it's getting and it needs more of that. 
So let's come back to talking about how much control we really have over our mind and a little bit about focusing on one task versus multitasking. And the reason why I bring that up is I remember a day in, in time in my prior life when I thought multitasking was just something to be really very proud of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, look at me, look at all the balls I have in the air and the plates spinning and all of this stuff happening. And now it's very, very challenging for me to multitask. The more I dedicate time to witnessing and awareness, the less it's possible for me to multitask. And I've got to think that there's something to that when we're talking about sensory overload. Definitely. Definitely. And again, one of my teachers told me years ago, and you're trying to do two things at once, he said, you're not going to do either of them properly. We talk about to complete something properly, giving it our full attention. Well, you can't if you're doing several things. Fullness is a quantifiable thing, so we can't. We can't give several things our full attention. We feel that we've got so many plates spinning and we're really doing a good thing, but eventually the plates drop. No plate spins forever. Eventually they drop and they smash, or we drop, and something in us smashes, as we've talked previously about frying our circuits. And it's really stressful. Multitasking is incredibly stressful. It's not a relaxed experience. So, yeah, you said something about controlling the mind. How much control do we have over our mind? And are we good at focusing on just one task, or are we easily distracted by our senses Yeah, we are. We're easily distracted by our senses and we're not good at controlling the mind. We're not good at it at all, which is where active relaxation, as we've spoken about in previous podcasts, and as you speak about as a yoga instructor, that's where the beauty lies in using gentle physical awareness to bring the mind under direction because you focus on the breath, you focus on your posture, and then you can begin to control the mind. And of course, when we talk about breathing exercises, particularly the pranayama type, then pran meaning our breath, mm-hmm. those exercises bring the breath under control. And when we control the breath, it slows and controls our thoughts because the thoughts of the mind are moved by our breath, according to Ayurveda and yoga. So if we're rushing and we're multitasking and our breathing is ragged and fast because we're on the go all the time, then we're making our mind more agitated and we just end up in this horrible hamster on a wheel cycle where we're not getting anything done properly and we're not having a good experience in our life and and in our bodies and in our minds either so it's difficult to control the mind it's incredibly difficult again in the Bhagavad Gita Arjun says that to control the mind is more difficult than controlling the wind Mm. it's really tough but if we can try and control our own wind and just slow things down and yoga meaning yoke, to yoke things in, to rein things in, if we can take clues from that, then we can begin to really calm and slow things down. But we can never expect the mind to do our bidding because it's an unruly child. But the more we use our awareness to engage our intelligence and use the mind as a tool and come above the mind with the intelligence, then we'll have a better experience with it. Well, and you make a good point because the mind is a tool. It's a tool for our use. It's nothing more than that. It's not a prison we inhabit. And you talk about or have mentioned in prior conversation the discussion points from turning off the BlackBerry mind. 
the Meditation Essentials by Matthew Remsky. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that before we close today. Yeah, he makes some beautiful observations. And I like his title, Turning Off the Blackberry Mind. It's, mm-hmm. um, or the Facebook mind or the Twitter mind or, you know, whatever the mind is is engaged by. I love the word Twitter because when we're utter disturbed by excessive use of mobile phones, devices, computers, that's exactly what the mind does. It twitters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it twitters on. So Twitter's a fantastic name. And although you and I dip in throughout our working day, and we're sharing updates with our clients and our community that we're connected to, I've noticed that our tweets are frugal. We're not Twittering on every 10 minutes. We probably go Mm-mm. once or twice a day post a couple of what we feel are uh, hopefully salient updates for others, and we're off again. But mm-hmm. these things become very addictive, and the mind starts to really grab hold of those and chatter. So, yeah, he makes a beautiful point in this turning off the Blackberry mind is to give ourselves t- space to realise that, as you said, the mind is a tool. We aren't the mind any more than we are our physical bodies. We go way deeper than that and way beyond that. So rather than getting caught up in the whirlwind of the mind to use our intelligence to structure time for pause and for reflection. And then we can start to bring the mind under our direction. And he also talks about the mind being like a hand, like the hand can grasp and receive or it can release our experiences. And that reminds me of a quote from Lord Buddha where he says that when you hold on to your own anger and you grasp anger, it's like you're holding on to a hot coal. You're choosing to hold on to that emotion, but you're... You're grasping that anger and you're burning yourself. It's always interesting to look at these things and think, okay, well then, the mind doesn't have to run me. I don't have to be stuck in this stress and anxiety. I can find a way of getting help and gaining control over these experiences, these emotions that are running through my body like wildfire. And there's no doubt they're causing havoc and it's an awful experience. And it's easy to see how people can feel that they'll never step out of that. But with help in directing the mind and bringing the mind under control, that's where they can put a spoke in that constantly spinning wheel and slow things down and and be able to get on top of things and have a more comfortable experience. Well, and as we've mentioned before, there are spaces between all things. And taking time for pause or meditation finds these spaces and allows the mind to rest in them. Definitely. And it's a wonderful experience, which I know you've had yourself, where you just learn to sit and use your breath as an object of concentration to give your mind something to think about so it's occupied, but also to use your breath actively to relax more, to slow down your blood pressure, your racing heart, your racing mind, bring it all down. And when you learn to practice breath awareness in the sense that you have those pauses between your inhalation and exhalation, where there's actually nothing going on with the breath and it naturally pauses at that point, that's when your whole internal awareness breathes a real sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. It's just an incredible experience to be able to stop it all for a while and just find that point of stillness. It really is. And the other way that that I can get control of my mind when when I feel lost is to remind myself and to affirm that all is well. Mm-hmm. and that I am safe, and that everything will work out as it should or for my greater good. And by repeating that a handful of times, and sometimes it's just all is well, I am safe, and that 
there's some power to that. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not something that I originated. It's something, it's an affirmation that I learned from some reading I did. Um, Louise Hay, I think, is where that, that came from. Yeah, it sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, and and again, it's such a simple way to take back control of a mind that is running roughshod on the rest of your life. Yeah, it's a very liberating and wonderful experience to be your own counsel and to use your higher awareness to direct your mind. What do we do if a friend's disturbed or one of our children are disturbed? We hug them up and we tell them, it's okay, it's okay, come on. Mm -hmm. And we look after them. And when you do that for yourself, you put yourself in a relaxing pose, you follow some guided meditation and you settle yourself down and give yourself support. It's a very empowering situation to be in. I think for myself, when I've been in real bad physical pain and I can just take myself off and say, come on now, let's just lay down and relax. And I sort myself out in that way. I've learned so much from doing that that the pain was worth it. Mm. in all honesty and I think mm. again because of our busyness we we overlook simplicity and it's a great shame when your house is on fire there's nothing more simple than water and there's nothing more necessary and water is the most simple thing it's everywhere it comes out the clouds it's in the rivers it's in the ocean we all know it's everywhere and when there's a fire we run and we get water fast the simplest thing but that's the simple solution for that particular problem that particular danger or emergency and many of us have an emergency and a fire going on in our own nervous system so we need to learn to put that out fast before it causes real harm when i think today that by addressing that that feeling of helplessness that feeling of overload by sharing the fact that we have supportive choices that we can make to balance things out to come back to what you like to talk about, senses and sensibility. It's a beautiful thing. We do have the supportive choices all around us. So like water to the fire, by just tuning in and paying attention to where we are feeling most overwhelmed and then taking that next step, finding that time for pause, we can allow ourselves to rest in that space and to comfort ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the key to a more peaceful, tranquil, confident life, a more calm life. It's just the way to be more content. Mm. Thank you so much, Tananga. This was really great. Once again, I learned a great deal from you and look forward to our next interview as we continue our conversations about Ayurveda. Thank you, Shan. Thank you for listening to the Slayer Sessions. If you like what you just heard, please pass along this podcast to a friend. You're welcome to visit our website at anxietyslayer.com for more supportive tools and anxiety release exercises created to slay your anxiety.